Hi, I'm Tara. And I'm Alex. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. Today, we're talking about the Aristocats. So in our last episode, the man, the myth, the legend, Walt Disney dies. With that, his brother Roy, who I mentioned before was looking to retire, ended up taking over the company as chairman along with Don Tatum, president, and Card Walker, who became the vice president of operations. They are referred to as the Disney Troika and oversaw operations of Walt Disney Productions from 1966 to 1971. This included the completion of Walt Disney World, the launch of Cal Arts, the release of The Jungle Book, a Winnie the Pooh short, and The Aristocats, which came out in 1970. However, when they assumed these leadership positions, Walt Disney Productions was not in the best place. I mentioned toward the end of last episode that after Walt's death, leadership planned to gradually phase out the animation department. The success of The Jungle Book was the start of them beginning to change their minds. However, Leonard Moulton notes that, quote, with Walt gone, many of his veteran animators dropping out of the picture, there was a time in the late 60s and early 70s when it seemed that Disney animation was going to die. Because Walt had his hand in so many things, it took a while for Roy to establish who would take over certain departments, like animation and WED, but those decisions didn't come naturally or easily. So remember how like since the beginning of this podcast, I've mentioned Walt doesn't like putting other people's names on projects, that it took like years for the company to include credits in their films instead of just slapping his name on the opening slate, and how it's still an issue at this point in history because the Nine Old Men typically just give credit to the people that they are close to, well, it comes to bite the company in the butt just a little bit. By keeping his animators anonymous, the Disney Troika had a difficult time finding the obvious leader to run the animation department, and they didn't really end up choosing a leader. As I mentioned before, Everything was done by committee, and there was a lot of indecision. Richard Sherman, who worked with his brother to write songs for a bunch of Disney films in the 60s, like Mary Poppins, said people were so concerned about making the decisions that Walt would make if he were still alive, and not sure as to what that decision would be, that it scared them into indecision and inaction. Movies were shelved, songs were cut, and the company goes stagnant for a bit, creatively. It's this environment that compels the Sherman brothers to leave the studios. And the last movie that they worked on was The Aristocats. Known good decision maker, Walt Disney. (laughs) Another issue that the animation department was running into was the fact that the remaining animators had been with the studio since the 1930s. They were getting older, and many of the new animators coming in felt like they were out of touch with modern audiences. Across the film industry in the United States, animation shrinks throughout the 60s and early 1970s. If you couldn't tell by the number of animated films the studios released in the 60s versus the 50s, it's clear that this is also happening at Walt Disney Productions. To add to that national trend, Roy's main priority as head of the company isn't reinvesting in the animation department. While he's making both creative and financial decisions now, his involvement in the creative side of the company comes from a more sentimental place. He keeps animation afloat to honor Walt, and that's about it. And his attention is turned elsewhere. He becomes determined to finish the big project that Walt was so excited about, which is his East Coast Disneyland Park. 
He does this in the most Roy way possible, though. He's all for making the park a reality, but pulls out every trick in the book to make sure the company can build it debt-free. Which, as we discussed on our episode, Lady and the Tramp, didn't happen with Disneyland. So with the East Coast Park, he considered a merger offer from Westinghouse Electric, but worried the company would try to swindle him, so he turned it down. In 1968, he ended up selling $40 million in Walt Disney Productions' convertible debentures. Now, my knowledge on economics and finance is lacking. I'm the one person on my dad's side of the family that did not go into business or accounting or finance. So... I asked my dad, a retired accountant, to explain this to me and why this might be useful. Convertible debenture is typically a piece of debt that somebody owns Okay. that you're allowed the instrument that you own can be at certain times converted into equity. And that's just a different form of ownership of the company. So debt would be something that um, a company issues to an individual or another person, Mm -hmm. and that person gives the company money. And the company has, it's it's like an IOU from the company. They're gonna pay you off and they're gonna pay you interest. Okay. So the company, like, so if you own this? If you're the owner of the convertible debenture. Yes. Yeah, convertible debt, yeah. Convertible debt. So like, you're a company, let's say. Yeah. Say you sell like, donuts. Yes. Okay. And so you, I you buy, need some money. In, I you need the, some money. I need some money. The you person know. that sells donuts needs money. Yes, yeah, so you need money, right? Yes. So you're selling. So basically, you're selling people debt. Yes. Okay. I'm yes borrowing money. I the donut company am borrowing money from other people. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. And you are lending me that money, and in return, mm-hmm. I'm gonna promise to pay you back in five years okay. and I'm going to pay you interest along the way. Okay. That's debt or a debenture. Okay. Convertible debentures are when that same transaction or same thing occurs, mm-hmm. but um, you, the owner of the debenture, the person that loaned the money to the donut company, mm-hmm. You may get paid back your money, or you may convert it into owning the donut company, or a so portion of it. So, how do you make that decision, or does the company make that decision? Uh, usually, the debt instrument outlines exactly what has to happen for that to occur. Okay. And usually, if the company becomes profitable at a certain level, it's more advantageous to you, the holder of the debenture, mm-hmm. to convert it into equity mm-hmm. versus get your debt paid off. I see. So when you say like converted into equity, that's basically like owning a share, share. of the company yeah. instead of just oh, getting your money back. Correct. Essentially. Yeah. Okay, at with, that with point, the interest. Okay. you would just own a portion of the company. It's usually not a hundred percent and you would now have shares. You'd never get your money back Okay. unless you sold those shares. Got it. So then at that point you could be strategic and wait until the shares would go for a lot. Like assuming that they would. Right. You know, and then that way you may be able to get back more than what you paid for. Exactly. Okay. So there becomes a point on a convertible debenture Mm -hmm. that the price of the stock of the company, the ownership piece, gets high enough. Mm -hmm. And that's usually because the company's doing well. Mm -hmm. That you would get more money by converting into stock and just selling the stock. Got it. Than just taking your 
whatever you loaned them back. That makes sense. And so then do you, so, and basically when you, I think you said this before, but like when you decide to give them the money for the convertible to venture, it's in that agreement that says when you can convert it or it, is it the buyer's decision when they can convert it? Yeah, I think any, the agreements can be, I, I think it's typically in the, the buyer's decision, okay. the buyer of the debt's decision. Okay. You, you have to read the debt agreement, the debenture agreement to really know how it works. But typically it's the buyer that has that ability to say, I want to convert this. Okay. And from a company standpoint, is it more advantageous to have more people with stock in the company? Or is it better usually, but like at what point is it, like what, like in what situation is it better for the company for, to it just be a bunch of IOUs with interest versus right. like stock? Yeah, that varies by company and by industry, mm-hmm. but usually there's, there's some level of what they call debt to capital ratio, which okay. is debentures to equity okay. or debt to equity, or there's some, some level, some percentage that makes sense for that company. And then there are some companies that are out there that are just very debt adverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but usually it's a mix of the two. Yeah. And usually the advantage or, or since I'm going to, I could issue you just debt mm-hmm. or I can issue you convertible debt. Mm-hmm. You're going to be buying it loaning. Because you have some ability on convertible debt to convert to equity and you have a lot more options, mm-hmm. sometimes the interest rate on that is a little lower. Okay. So that's the advantage to the company. Mm. I can issue convertible debt potentially at a slightly lower rate. Than regular debt. Than regular debt. Okay. But you have the ability to convert it then. Roy also ended up creating a municipality to make the park. This way, he could subvert any governmental influence, building permit requirements, inspecting and zoning matters while building the park. <laughs> the most you know, every everyone jokes that Disney World is its own city, but it actually is. It actually is. By the late 1960s, he sets the opening date for October 1st, 1971, thinking that would give him enough time to get everything together. But he ran into a lot of issues he didn't account for, specifically landscape issues. The land he bought for the park was very low, only four feet above the water table. There's also a lot of wildlife, rivers, and lakes in the area. So the first thing Cruz had to do was clear everything out to build a 16-foot hill to build the park on top of. This way, they could avoid major flooding and build that whole underground tunnel facility office system that Walt Disney World has become so oddly known for. The other issue was the fact that Walt ran WED, and Roy had no idea what went into designing and building an amusement park from the attraction standpoint, so he deferred all creative decisions to Dick Irvin. Speaking of theme parks, Walt's whole vision for Epcot dies at this point. Good. (laughs) After his death, the company did install his Epcot model in the Carousel of Progress in Disneyland. Marvin Davis and WED was actually working to make that model a reality, but Cardwalker, Bill Anderson, and Roy all told him to just abandon the project because they didn't think Walt's original idea had enough entertainment value. So, instead of building Epcot down in Florida like they were kind of originally planning, they decided to make a second Disneyland park. To honor his late brother, Roy decided to call it Walt Disney World instead of Disneyland East. 
back at Disneyland. The Pirates of the Caribbean ride opened in 1967, um, and that's a project that Walt put a lot of work into before he died. In 1968, Roy ended up giving the presidency of Walt Disney Productions over to Don Tatum, who was vice chairman of the board of directors at the time. Card Walker becomes the executive vice president and COO, but Roy doesn't retire yet. He remains CEO of the company to make sure Walt Disney World is complete. Because Walt Disney World opened in 1971, we're going to talk more about those details behind its construction and its opening in our next episode. During all of this, Roy is also trying to get Walt's CalArts program off the ground. Walt wanted this to be an art school that would create the next generation of animators for Walt Disney Productions. Walt was so sure of this idea that he left a significant portion of his estate to the project with vague guidelines of how the money should be spent or what the school should even look like, which stressed Roy out so much. But he ended up opening the school in 1970, and it got off to a, a rocky start. So basically, there's a big counterculture movement happening in the U.S. at the time. College campuses across the country are protesting, stealing, smoking weed, celebrating sexual liberation. So this is Roy's personal nightmare. Um, so he tries to sell CalArts to USC and Pepperdine, but those deals didn't go through. Uh, he really just wanted it to like leave forever. Um, but within the few years, atmosphere on campus did kind of calm down a little bit, but it would never actually happen in Roy's lifetime. Historians say Roy kept CalArts open because Walt wanted it. And as I said before, Roy is super sentimental during this time. Anything Walt touched or dreamed, besides Epcot, he would make into a reality. Animation historian Michael Barrier has found that more recent studies of CalArts note, quote, there's little evidence that bringing the arts together has resulted in unique accomplishments, which is the opposite of what Walt thought would happen. All of these reasons contribute to why the studio's animation feature film, following The Jungle Book, would not hit screens for another four years. Plans for the Aristocats date back to 1961. Wald wanted to produce an animal story for the Wonderful World of Color TV show on NBC and told Harry Tidal to produce and Tom McGowan and Tom Rowe to write. He found a book about a mother cat and her kittens and their lives in New York City, and that's what they were going to base it off of. In 1962, Walt Disney Productions put together a script for a two-part live-action television show that could be put together and sold as a movie later on. A plot would follow a pair of lovers, a butler and a maid, played by Boris Karloff and Francois Rosé, who were in line after cats to inherit their mistress's fortune. The B plot would follow the cats as they hit around Paris. They put the script together and sent it to the companies, but in 1962, the project was rejected by an unknown executive. So, title goes to Walt, who was staying in London at the time, and Walt approves the project, so long as he made a few revisions. Notably, this is the last animated feature that Walt would greenlight. They made the revisions by February 1963, but Roan notably hated the changes Walt wanted to make. He even wrote a strongly worded letter to Walt to air his frustrations, but Tidal told him that the changes would stay. It wouldn't matter in the long run, though, because that summer, Tidal would recommend the project be an animated feature, and since Roy was on a strict only one animated feature at a time mentality, the project was shelved. During the shelving period, Tidal is replaced by Winston Hibbler as producer. So as production on The Jungle Book wrapped in 1967, Walt assigned Ken Anderson to the project and wanted him to assess whether Aristocats would make a good featured film. Anderson ended up working with Wolfgang Reitherman and condensed the two-part live-action special into an animated film. 
Anderson took out the maid character altogether, added the mouse and the three geese, and ended up taking out every Sherman Brothers song except for Scales and Arpeggios, and she never felt alone. Walt recruited Floyd Huddleston and Al Rinker to write the music, and they're the ones who wrote Everyone Wants to Be a Cat. All in all, the animation process took about 18 months to complete. Phil Harris comes back for a second movie, this time voicing Thomas O'Malley, the alley cat. And fun fact, Louis Armstrong was going to voice Scat Cat, but he ended up getting sick at the last minute, so they had to find a replacement. The movie hit theaters on Christmas Eve 1970 and was a pretty decent success. It earned $10 million domestically and $28 million worldwide. Critics in general liked the movie, noting good characters and animations. Howard Thompson with the New York Times said, quote, Grand fun all the way, nicely flavored with tunes and topped with one of the funniest jam sessions ever by a bunch of scraggly bohemians headed by one scat cat. Sure, whatever. <laughs> End quote. Shut up, Howard. <laughs> Roger Ebert with the Chicago Sun-Times said, Light and pleasant and funny, the characterization is strong, and the voices of Phil Harris and Ava Gabor are charming in their absolute rightness. Charles Champlin with the Los Angeles Times says the film has a gentle, good-natured charm, which will delight the small fry and their elders alike. Incredible. <laughs> he praised the animation, but remarked that the film, quote, lacks a certain kind of vigor, boldness, and dash, a kind of hard-focused emphasis, which you would say was a Disney trademark, end quote. Arthur D. Murphy with Variety said, the writing in the film is, quote, helped immeasurably by the voices of Phil Harris, Ava Gabor, Sterling Holloway, Scatman Crothers, and others, plus some outstanding animation, songs, sentiment, some excellent dialogue, and even a touch of psychedelia. It also ended up being the most popular general release movie at the British box office and the most popular film in France in 1971 with 12.7 million emissions. It's also the 18th highest grossing film in France of all time. The Aristocats is one of those films that actually had a bit of a legacy that I didn't know about. There was an animated series about the kittens as teenagers that aired from 2000 to 2001 and then from 2003 to 2006. In 2005, there were talks of a possible sequel movie that would star Marie. She becomes smitten by another kitten on a cruise ship. However, and we'll talk about this down the road, the company got new management in 2006. John Lasseter became the new chief creative officer, so all the plans were just like flushed down the toilet. So even with all the drama going on at the company during the late 1960s, historians seem to be in consensus that the Troika was successful in the five years that they led Walt Disney Productions. They saw profits more than double over that period, which they credit to Walt, saying he had a hand in all the projects. And it's considered a time of stability in the company, which, you know, knowing Roy is pretty on brand. But a lot happened in 1971 that rocked the company, and not in the best way. As Aristocats came out in 1970, we'll talk about all that in our next episode on Robin Hood. It's a miracle Alex was able to get through all of this. Excuse me. <laughs> that was a test to see if you would just keep reading. And you did. I did, because I was curious to see what it said, and I figured it'd be something funny. <laughs> <laughs> If you listened to our Q&A episode, then you know what our top Disney movies are, and that The Aristocats wasn't on either of our lists. But we interviewed two people who have fond memories of the film at different ages. Well, my name's Ray. 
I uh, am currently in Charleston, South Carolina. Lord have mercy on my soul. Um, <laughs> but, you yeah, know, I am a graphic designer. I uh, got my start in design doing movie posters. So that kind of got me further into the movie kind of part of the Internet. Um, and currently, when I'm not doing my boring graphic design job, I get to work with um, film cred. Uh, so that's kind of that's kind of what I do for fun. Um, but yeah, I, I just I've always loved Disney in particular. Like, I know it sounds bad, but like <laughs> I grew up in Florida. So instead of going to anywhere else in the world, my parents every single year would bring us to Disney World. So we're a huge Disney family um, and grew up watching all the movies. And now that Disney Plus is in my reach, I get to watch everything. As you can tell, Disney plays a big role in Ray's life. And the Aristocats plays an especially sweet role in her relationship with her husband. It was definitely a blind spot for a while. Again, it's one of those things where I know I watched it as a child. I'm positive because I knew who Marie was. I knew who the Duchess was. Like, I knew these names. I knew the characters attached to them. But I had no idea what it was. And again, my, my husband and I have been together since we were 16. So we've done a lot of, like, adulting together and just, like, watching a shit ton of movies when we have nothing else better to do. Um, so we, we've we've experienced a lot of things together. And Arissa Katz was kind of one of them where his mom, he, he wasn't, like, a Disney kid growing up. Like, they watched Disney and stuff. They didn't really go to Disney World and everything. And they're also from Florida. Um, but his mom loves the Arissa Katz. And so... We watched the Aristocats together for the first time, and he was, like, singing along to the songs. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, like, I can, I can hum to it. But anyway, so it was just, it was wonderful watching him enjoy something like that. Um, because we never really had, like, a Disney thing together, except for, you know, like, Toy Story and stuff. Um, we didn't really have anything like that together. So it was very nice seeing a different kind of part of his, like, background, his, like, parental background and stuff. I don't know. It, I just felt... Like, I understood his mom more. I understood him more. So uh, the SLC at Florida State University, um, I don't know if y'all have ever heard Sarah Sorrentino talk about it, um, but that is a uh, kind of like an indie theater, like on Florida State's campus. Um, we would, sh I worked there and so did Sarah. Uh, anyway, so we would show movies there for FSU students. And my last year of being there, we got to show the Aristocats on valentine's day on 35 millimeter so it was it was really cool and like we got we, my my husband he wasn't my husband at the time but he and i got to sat, sit in like the back middle row and like a really nice we call it the red couch treatment where we would put like a really cool red couch in the back row um i don't know it was just super comfy super awesome and just like the best experience to watch that movie in like that setting the second guest who explicitly mentioned having a strong affinity for the Aristocats was Aaron. It's been a while since we've talked to him. We last heard from him in our episode on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Aaron's fondness for the Aristocats stems from his childhood. So let me first try to to delete. Let me delete the past 24 hours from my mind. Mm -hmm. It's gone. Um, now, how did I think about Aristocats when I was a kid? Uh, Aristocats was one, it was one of those ones that we had on VHS and we, we did watch it a lot. Um, but it was one that I always generally enjoyed watching and I don't really know why. Um, it's got some good, it's got some good moments. It's got some like, it's just fun. It's just a lot of fun. And, uh, I remember like the, 
the geese in the middle of the film, like really thinking like they were pretty funny. Um, and the song, the music is all pretty good. Uh, the dynamic between the mouse and the horse, like that's pretty good. And uh, ooh, the the lawyer, he's like he's real funny. He can't walk up the stairs. Uh, yeah, it's a good time. Um, so I don't, I'm, I really don't know why that one in particular resonated with me as a kid, especially because I am not really like a like a cat person. So. Like you would think that a movie like like a One Hundred and One Dalmatians or Lady and the Tramp or something like that would have resonated more, and I'm I also saw those like plenty of times. Maybe it's because I didn't have a specific fond memory of the movie, or maybe watching all the animated films like this has changed my taste. But this was my reaction after watching the Aristocats before recording. Oh, so this movie. Oh, th- oh, I don't. Huh. This that sounded very resigned. No, I just like so I watched it cuz I watched it in November. Yeah. When we were going to originally do this discussion and wow, so I can just put us on blast, why don't you? <laughs> Everyone knows who are we kidding at this point. Yeah. Um so I watched it again this morning just to try to like um jog my memory because I had ideas but i was like i just need to refresh my what i was thinking about and i think the general oh this movie it's not necessarily that i didn't enjoy it because i had a fun time watching it but like there were just a few things here and there that i was like that yeah like irked me okay a little bit such as such as where to begin um where to begin uh i mean thomas o'malley I was gonna say let's start at the beginning because man, I'm go- I'm real I'm glad we got a cultural insensitivity warning because how dare this movie How dare this movie subject me to the French <laughs> Is this movie even really like does the French aspect of this movie even really count? No. Not at all. I thought it was so funny, like apart from you know, like random like phrases thrown in that the characters say or the reference of like the petit cafe mm-hmm. or like the montage where Edgar is motorcarting around all the iconic Paris landmarks as if they yeah. are like right next to each other. It's and very the, and like the the names. Yes. Like that's about it otherwise. And then you get Thomas O'Malley, the alley cat. Right. Everything else just feels so American yeah <laughs> about it it really does with like the backdrop and like with that whole like duality like the whole the Americanness that is seeping into this Parisian story quote unquote I thought it was really odd and interesting I guess that um the two dogs are named Lafayette and Napoleon so they're named after like these two French like war generals or like war yeah. leaders and yeah. yet they sound like they're from rural Oklahoma. Yeah, they just sound like two dudes from from, from uh from the middle of bumfuck nowhere America. Yes. It's pretty great. It's it's I like the I like Napoleon and Lafayette. I think they're great, but you're very you're very correct and like it's just what are we doing here? Right. And I think that just sends like a weird image and message in general like 
I don't know, like, if you think about it, and I think this is something that happens a lot with this movie, but, and a lot with all these Disney movies we've been talking about, but, like, oversimplifying, like, more complex things, systems, and events, and what have you, like, I don't know. Yeah. They're just, they're trying to make nothing, like, a whole, like, important war situation. And again, I think that their exchange, like you said, their exchange is enjoyable and entertaining, and they uh-huh. have a fun dynamic. But it's just the fact... But also, it feels like they're, tr- yeah, it feels like they're trying to do the um, the thing from Lady and the Tramp again. Yeah. While the movie includes icons and words that show Parisian culture, Tara and I felt that the sense of place and setting is not strong, and we're not the only ones who felt that way. One of the th- like one of the first things I noticed I watched I watched the I watched them last night. One of the first things I noticed was that um, the Aristocats is set in Paris, which I had totally forgotten. And then like when I started watching the film again, I was like, oh yeah, duh, it's set in Paris. Like where else the hell would it be? The Aristocats has like you know its cast of characters. What struck me as I was watching that movie was when they're walking around London. Um, for example, the butler Edgar, when he makes the when he makes the kidnap initially at the beginning of the movie, he escapes um, out outside of Paris, and you know he is on his motorcycle riding the streets of Paris at night, and the streets are all totally empty except for him, which you know as a kid probably you wouldn't notice all that much as an adult, and maybe because me personally working so much with cities is like that's what i do i think i really picked up on like some of the urban cues of like what are they trying to say about the setting and about paris and to have it just be completely empty at night was like that really struck me as like there would totally be other people around and like you know nightlife and whatever and he's just motorcycling through the streets and they're completely empty and it actually lessened my enjoyment a little bit because you don't get as much of a sense of like the life that is going on it took a, a little bit out of the setting for me um and i think it honestly took a little bit out of that scene too because there really aren't any stakes in the escape right like he just kind of goes out of paris he passes the police station and like there's a funny little moment where he's uh scared that like a policeman is going to see him but there aren't any policemen around he just literally motorcycles on by it and so you know there's no there's no stakes there's no tension that he's like going to be caught in this moment while for aaron the lack of a sense of place was a detriment to the plot and stakes of the film he did like what it did for the aesthetics um but it's also it's beautiful and it's beautiful in like a very different way than a lot like the recent films the 3d ones that we were kind of talking about before um and I think, like, a lot of the charm about the Aristocats, but also, like, kind of all of the movies from this generation, one-on-one Dalmatians and, um, you know, all those other ones, it's it's beautiful in, like, a very... Like, you can, you can tell it's hand-drawn. And everything about it is, like, it's very put together, but there's still, like, an element of, like, sketch in it. And it just... It feels so, like, lovingly handcrafted. And, um, like, the background art for Paris is is gorgeous. And it's, like, just really fun to look at and to walk through and to see these characters traipse around in, at least for the short times in the film that they do get to. Um, and so that was, like, one thing. I was like, oh, yes, I immediately like that. 
work. I think the the dynamic between the characters works better here. Like the, the what's his name, the general in Lady in the Tr- uh, 101 Dalmatians. Excuse me, mm-hmm. not Lady in the Tramp. Mm-hmm. God, brain, please function. <laughs> um, I think the 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 character dynamics work better here, but like in terms of relevance to the plot, it works better in 101 Dalmatians. But yeah, this is like for for all of the parisian trappings of this movie it would work just as well if it were set in say oh i don't know uh 1980s new york city Mm -hmm. or even like a big city a bigger like city with a lot of because you do have like those rural scenes right that are very like provincial france but yeah, are they but even like, France? They're not France. No, <laughs> Just... you can do all that. You can find... I can find a river in New York State that looks like that. It's fine. Yeah, I guess you could. You're correct. And, and like, the traversal... The, the, the like, quote-unquote travel aspects of this movie are barely even in there to begin yeah. with. Like, they just kind of hand-wave away all that stuff. They get on the magic carpet and boom, we're back in town. Problem solved. Handle. Yeah, you're right. Like, kind of drawing back on 101 Dalmatians like you've been doing, the whole travel aspect, there's a lot more stakes involved it you can see like the actual struggles that there are to like get the puppies back safely whereas here it's like even when they run into issues like when the milk driver finds out there's cats and kicks him out you know they're like yes ah, it's whatever we'll just, we'll just walk yeah. it's fine and then and then we time skip to them being back in paris right. like comparing comparing 101 Dalmatians to this, it's just like, man, priorities were different. Yes. Um, yeah, because in general, like, I think both have, like, their lighthearted moments, but this one is definitely in tone lighthearted. And oh, yeah. more. F- it's more of just about the fun. Like, I mentioned a few times, like, it feels, just because of the way the physical comedy is, the way Reitherman directs it with his focus yeah. on action and everything, it feels very Looney Tunesy. Like, it does. Um, I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's even softer than Looney Tunes. Because mm-hmm. Looney Tunes, like, <clears throat> Looney Tunes has, like, a lot harsher violence. And the worst thing that happens here is someone gets kicked into a into a uh, a trunk and like the the that kick especially at the end where like the horse kicks edgar into the trunk there's no impact there whatsoever where and i'm gonna because you invited the looney tunes comparison mm-hmm. every hit in <clears throat> every hit in a looney tunes cartoon has a sense of impact to it which is what makes that like all the tom and jerry stuff so funny you feel it when he runs into that laundry board but because he but because tom stretches it's fine Mm -hmm. whereas the physical comedy here works because it's not really impactful it's just balloons getting knocked around that happen to be in the shape of things you recognize yeah so like very like looney tunesy in a disney way (laughs) If you think about it, it's like the Disney version of it, you know, like, again, because we don't even like you said, we're not even going to see like the real consequences of these like intense, not even intense, like these hits and these like fights, like, you know, even the scene where um, Roquefort's like trying to uh, unlock the box 
and he yells at everyone to be quiet and they all just kind of stand still and like Edgar's which like, is an incredible gag so it's good so good it's so good but like you know Edgar's like strangling two cats when this and is happening they, yeah and then they all stop and then they go back to Tussie exactly and like the cats are fine yeah yeah there's no st- there's no stakes in this no which like is reinforced by the fact that there's no Disney fake out death in this at oh all. yeah you're right there is um which uh, just amazing we love to see it stop stop just stop doing it and i know we're gonna get more of it as we go on because it's it's a staple of the disney formula someone's got a fake die um tug on those heart strings make us cry make them cry make them cry i like that Um, i didn't have to cry in this though yeah but also i would have liked some better more more of a reason to pay attention i'm worried that we're coming out of the gate positive. I'm worried that people are going to get the wrong impression that we like this movie. Oh, I did like it. Eh. I didn't. I don't think it. I think in the grand scheme of things, it'll be like mid for yeah, me. Yeah, it's it's very mid. It's very mid. But I think out of what we've seen now. Yeah. Because I like if I'm going to choose between a movie that like aesthetically looks good versus one that made like you know i thought was more fun i typically Uh go more for like fun because i like the characters and that kind of stuff but yeah of course even with that it is still very mid because i did the characters bugged me sometimes (laughs) okay i will say it's extremely mid in that i think this is better than some stuff later on that will probably get me yelled at by a variety of people um (laughs) oh but yeah in terms of what 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 about, who bugged you? Who you what you what you didn't like? You said you wanted to start with Thomas, so let's talk about yeah. Let's talk about Mr. Smooth Operator Thomas O'Malley, Smooth the op- cat who's trying to fuck. <laughs> Thank you. He's yes. trying to fuck. Okay, because here's so the thing. So hard. Here's the thing. Okay, like the movie works so hard to present Thomas O'Malley as this like charmingly innocent. Nah. cat you know like uh-uh. works so hard to be like yeah he's a scoundrel and he just wants to like get with all the lady cats but at the same time like he really just has a heart of gold and he's really a good guy but at the same time like i felt like those two ideas like this scoundrel alley cat and uh-huh. then this guy with the heart of gold were constantly clashing to the yes. point where i didn't know how i felt about him yeah, I will. I will tell you exactly how I felt. I wrote this down when uh, he was done with his song. Mm-hmm. I was like, Thomas O'Malley is too smooth. If he was Anthro, Tumblr would have lost it. <laughs> he would have been one slurred immediately. He would have. And then my sub point on that: uh, when the kids start showing up, Thomas wasn't ready for Milf Town. No. No, not ready. He at really all. wasn't. And here's the thing: like throughout up until the scene on the rooftop where he so slyly grabs duchess's tail with his tail that okay, is a move that was that a, is move. a move it was a, it was a good move but up until- cu- coupled with the fact that he's like i think they need a dad right they need a dad i could do that i'm like you've been doing that the entire time you've saved uh marie from certain death like three times yes and it's always just marie but we can get to that in a minute yeah um but he like up until that point, I never really trusted him. I never really knew what his intentions were because, like, he seems like, and it probably is also just like Phil Harris being Phil Harris and like the, yeah. the star image and the celebrity image that, you know, we just saw him with Baloo. 
you know, who's a little, like, again, kind of like the happy-go-lucky kind of stuff, but everyone's like, oh, Baloo, you know? So it's really hard, I think, to associate his voice with anything that could be possibly conniving. But, like, you know, at first I'm like, oh, he clearly just wants to get in her pants. Like, that is the sole motivation. But then, like, he's, like, so, like... And I think he's, and then, like, you know, because he lets them go. And then, like, when he, he says the line, um, I wrote it down because I was, yeah, he goes, you're not a cat, you're a rat. And I was like, okay, so that means he acknowledges that he's, like, the scoundrel alley cat. And he's just kind of going after this duchess for, like, the sex drive part of it. Right. But then, like, when he gets them on the magic carpet, he's content to just leave without any like yeah any sort of prize which confused me and then sir saves marie from certain death um that happens and then like even throughout like you're kind of like we keep oscillating you know sometimes i'm like okay he's actually doing this because he is a good guy but then there's other times when you're like okay i don't know maybe not and i was thinking okay he's a good guy until the scene on the roof when he looks at duchess and he's like wow wait your eyes really do sparkle like sapphires or something and i'm like Oh, my God. <laughs> Aaron also picked up on the smooth operator vibes that Thomas was giving off in the movie. The the Thomas O'Malley song, like, even though it is, like, super catchy and, uh, like, very, it's very charming in its own way. Uh, I have to say that, like, Thomas O'Malley, he's, like, he's quite a charmer and, and, and kind of a, like, he really comes on to Duchess. And it's it's very clear that, like, Duchess is into it in that film. But I was like, I don't know if that's super realistic. Like, ah, I don't know. So that was like one weird thing. But Tara saw it a different way. I mean, like, I don't think these are mutually exclusive necessarily. Yeah. Like, I think it's the th- fact of like, because he's on board until the kids show up. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, nope, I'm getting you out of here. I don't want any part of this. Mm-hmm. And then like the like the there is good there is like the fucking heteronormative good good dad figure part that re- that pops up when Marie falls off the truck because if they jump off the truck they're not getting back mm-hmm. un- unless they walk and he's stuck and he's got to go with them anyways so he like i guess in, like instinct kicks in and he's like well got to go help got to help out now but like i don't think he has any like like once the kids re- manifest, like I said, he's not ready for that. Right. So he immediately bails. Right. So, like, it's it's that thing of, like, I don't know. It, it, to me, it, it seems like he was trying to go for, like, the pickup, realized that there was more baggage than he was necessarily ready for in that moment. Mm-hmm. But he didn't want him to get completely, you know, shafted and have to go, like, undo all the work he just did, mm-hmm. scaring the truck. So... He ended up along for the ride, and like, and then they grew closer as time went on. Um, so I don't know. I I kind of see it, and he just kind of like it. It's more of a thing of like he kind of got sucker pun- like sucker punched into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scene on the roof, I have issues with for other reasons. Um, let me. I I wrote a note about it because. Um, Duchess doesn't even entertain the thought of bringing Thomas with them into into Adelaide's house. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, no, I could never leave her. And he, and Thomas is just like, I mean, why? 
she's just a person she doesn't care about you and but like which he's like a stray so i understand why he has that perception of people Mm -hmm. um but also like the like people adopt stray cats all the time like i work with a lot of people who have taken cats out of our work parking lot and taken them home (laughs) uh so people adopt stray cats all the time and this woman is going is like gearing up to leave her not insubstantial fortune to her cats i'm sure she'll be fine duchess adopting this stray house cat and projecting her heteronormative insecurities onto him uh but you don't even like how 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 serious are you about thomas oh, if t- you're not even considering that as a possibility i totally agree i never like i think she was like charmed by his personality you know he was she was like oh like you know like even like the way that um ava gabor like voices her you know you get the sense that she's endeared by him but you Uh never really get the sense that she like is serious about it right (laughs) which i think is in part like the fact that she is presented as this idealistic the ideal mother figure, you know, like when her kids are being rascals in the beginning, you know, just being kids, like she very gently scolds them, you know, is like, you know, and like, and of course they follow along because that's the, because the actions of your kids are a reflection of how good of a mother you are. Right. So like, yeah, they're going to mess around, but they're going to listen to her. So, and with that, as a mother, like within this characteristic of the ideal mom she's just she's solely focused on her children and not herself yeah you know and doesn't even think to be selfish or like think about her needs and wants it's always about like her kids and other people because like the caretaker role model and all that kind of stuff um so yeah but like with that being said i even you never i i never even really got the inclination that I mean, like, there was, like, a, sometimes I may have been, like, oh, maybe she does, like, want this, you know, want him, but I never really was, like, sold that they were gonna... Right. Right, yeah. End up together. Yeah, no, it... Through the entirety of the of the runtime of the movie, you can see the hands of the writers just shoving these two together like they're chess pieces. Yeah. Um, and it's... It's not even frustrating because if it's because saying it's frustrating implies that I'm invested in their relationship. Yeah. Um, because it like as soon as he shows up because of the Disney formula formula at this point, I'm like, ah, yes, the scoundrel male romance lead and the questionably age appropriate female (laughs) character. Of course, they're going to get together. Exactly. And I'm just, uh, and then the implication at the end where uh, Adelaide is like, "Oh, they're future, future young youngins," and like Thomas gets scared. I'm like, "Fuck it, just, just running down the checklist here, huh?" Well, it's that, and like also that is the moment. It isn't until that moment where like Duchess is literally like snuggling up next to him. Uh-huh. like really intently like that is i'm just like oh my god but then again please. like when she mentions it's kids it's like that's her mother uh-huh. coming through not necessarily her as an individual right i feel like if there's... and it's not even it's not even something that she puts a voice to it's spoken mm-hmm. for her because yes. it's the expectation yes exactly and like at the same time 
I feel like if this was a different movie, because again, I know I'm like reading into this. This isn't like actually what the writers were doing, but I feel like just with because of how emotionally distant she seems to be from Thomas. That whole beginning part when she's like, we're just trying to get to Paris, you know, we could use a little help. I feel like that could be her totally playing him, like recognizing that he's into her and then being yeah. like, well, I can I mean, use some she's, help. I, I think that's a perfectly valid read because she is absolutely flirting right back. Yes, but I feel like it's not, but again, not because she wants to, like, yeah, she thinks she's endearing, but ultimately at the end of the day, the goal is mm-hmm. let's get, get back home. home. Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. Okay. Because I was like, girl, I, I appreciate girl. this, but like, yeah. wow. But also, like, that is us picking up on, like, the subtext of her performance. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that's, I, that is not in the text at all. Not at all. I think the writers were definitely like, she's going to be so wooed by him. No, I, <laughs> I just, oh, God, I don't know. Like, years of being on the internet has ruined me because i immediately like my defenses went up as soon as he came on screen yeah just like uh uh-uh 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 zootopia is later i don't need to deal with this right now he's just (laughs) he's just fucking the he's just the fox from zootopia oh he's nicer than the fox from zootopia he is nicer from the he is nicer yeah he is a lot nicer that's all i think that's also because uh, yeah one he is actually nicer but two phil uh phil harris sounds nicer than jason bateman does yeah so i don't know we'll talk about we'll we will talk about zootopia down the road in like three years at this rate but you know who's counting who's counting not us certainly (laughs) no of course um I'm trying to think. I think that's all I had on Duchess O'Malley, their relationship. Yeah. All, uh, while we're, and then while heteronormativity. We're Blah. Yeah. Uh, we've we've talked enough about that yeah. and around it. Like it's it's fine. Expectations. They're there. The their expectations are forced upon them by everyone around them and it sucks. While reviewing our guest interviews for this episode, I noticed we had two people who brought up very similar thoughts and sentiments regarding the three kittens, specifically while watching this movie in the past. Ray mentioned her family. The cats are just hilarious because it just reminds me of my brothers and I. Um, I don't know. It's just, it, it, there's a lot of like tie-ins to, that I can make from the movie itself to like my personal uh, relationships. Aaron also mentioned his family. Uh, the dynamic between the the kittens really liked that, and I think having siblings uh, growing up like that kind of resonated with me. The dynamic between Marie and uh, Toulouse and Berlioz, I think, were their names. Uh, like, definitely, I have one sister and one brother, and I'm a middle kid, so like that I think probably really resonated with me as a kid. Tara and I didn't feel quite as positive about it. Uh, one of us taking a more negative stance than the other. What What is your opinion on these kids? So I just think they're, they're just kids. I don't know. Like they are purposefully like, I think, you know, kind of how we talked about Duchess being the ideal mother figure in this um, and how they're, um, the way they 
listen to her and respond to her reflects her success as a mother. I th- I think that they're just, you know, they have like they have their own personalities. They're little twerps sometimes, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also like very much kids in that they talk big game and then when they get in trouble they're like oh no mom help me oh no i messed up and you know like like kids would be so um, i for, for building on that um what part of marie putting her almost fucking beefing it twice in within 30 minutes reflects good on duchess as a mom sexism She's supposed to be the damsel. That's a, a, a good point, a, actually. Yeah, no, like, because like, from the beginning, Duchess is talking about how she wants to raise them to be ladies and gentlemen, right? And That's what do you fair. think about yeah. the stereotypical lady? She's constantly the damsel in distress who needs to be rescued. I'm, uh, I guess that's a fair point. <laughs> uh, but generally, when I think like damsel in distress, I don't think literally an inch away from drowning. I do. <laughs> Because hmm. you need like there needs to be the the fact the factor of real danger so that someone has to save her. I guess so, but like if that's the case, like I think her falling off the truck is a better example of that because like there's a slight danger there, but she's not like actually legitimately about to die. Like at like it's supposed to be a performance of damsel in distress, right? Not like I'm going to drown, and also. I feel like you, uh, hey, Duchess, maybe don't just lose track of one of your kids and and let her fall through a fall through a, a, a train bridge. I think the deconstruction of it is performance, and especially if you're looking at it from a That's female fair. perspective. But I do think from the male perspective, it's not performance so much because the male, the men would assume the woman could not actually handle themselves right like there's this there's this i guess so yeah at least that's the way i have always viewed it that's fair i guess (laughs) yeah but like so that's kind of and then even like when you look at toulouse and berlioz like you know they're supposed to be like these little gentlemen right who paint and who play piano but they're kind of like they're the worst. I hate them. Well, like you can see them becoming assholes when they're older. Like they're going to be yes, those. Yes, absolutely. They're going to be the the characters in Jane Austen novels that are like potentially threatening to the main love interest, and then get like exposed for having some like horrible dark secret, like leaving a woman in a ditch, uh, and then and then they get driven off, and Matthew McFadden wins the day. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking something similar, like, and of course, like they're kids kids are assholes just yeah. usually so you can't like it's i like again these are fictional characters i realize that but i also feel bad like predetermining their fate you know when things could happen but at I the mean, same time fair. you get the idea that like but also they're being raised in the aristocracy exactly so that's you know what's gonna happen here. yeah yes Precisely. Also, never let any of these children sing ever again. They're all terrible. I wanted to rip my ears off during scales and arpeggios. Oh my god! Their 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 piano playing skills are great. Oh like, yeah, that's fine. Berlioz that's impressive. got it. He's got yeah. the game. Uh, Marie, Marie, please, please learn what pitch is, please. But again, like that's like your typical Jane Austen character who like. Yeah you know is not the one you're rooting for because they can't sing well. Oh, God. We all can't be Marianne's. 
Oh, you're right. <laughs> but like that that's what like <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But oh my god, I didn't think about that. Mm. <sighs> yeah. Uh anyways, anyways, speaking speaking of uh characters who are supposed to be unlikable, but uh I love them dearly. Wait, are we still on animals? Yeah. Okay. Cuz I'm going to talk about the geese. Wait, you like the geese? I love the geese. <laughs> I think it's got more to do with the fact that, like, they're tied up in nostalgia for me. Mm. And, like, actually good memories. One of the ways my mom used to get me comfortable with, like, the deep end was to tell me to go bottoms up. Aww. And then, we like, in, like I would go bottoms up, I'd come back up, and then she'd, we'd yell deeper, and I'd go all the way down. <laughs> so... It's tied up in nostalgia for me, but also I know women who act, I know elderly British women who act like this with their sisters. They are intolerable, <laughs> but to see them mocked so relentlessly by these geese, it rules. They're, I want to make it abundantly clear, the geese fucking suck. I hate them, but I love them. I think they're fun to watch on screen, and I mm-hmm. think part of that is because the film presents them in such a self-aware light. Yes. Like, we all know like, Waldo's a mess, Waldo was 100% about to get eaten. Oh, 100%. (laughs) It's so good. He was in the white wine marinade, which is why he's (laughs) shit-faced. And then just, like, we we all have that friend. We know we've been with them out on the street as they're yelling at the top of their lungs because they're plastered drunk, and you're just Mm -hmm. like, shh, shh, shh. And they're like, no! Yep. Yep. I also think it's just amazing how, like, they're so self-aware of these fucking shitty british sisters because they come over and immediately start basically start doing phrenology on thomas o'malley because they're like oh look at his face look at his eyes look at his brow look at his facial structure this man won't amount to anything i'm like wow phrenology of class i can't believe this is in a disney movie i can totally believe it's in a disney movie oh 100 it's still just like bruh out here just do out here just doing the damn thing huh they call and then him- they go to they go to bite the vines the, the on because they're like ah oh, you won't learn how to swim this way and he's just Not like really. trying to survive and he's like no don't do that it's really funny they, they're terrible but they're great characters the the digs are good philanderer who plays with unsuspecting women's hearts oh uh, savage got him <laughs> Got him. <laughs> uh, no, they Fucking were entertaining. Laid out, just absolutely murked. Uh man. I would hate these people in real life. To be a hundred percent clear, these are the worst kind of people, and that's why I love them. My taste in characters does not reflect my taste in people. I would despise them if I knew them in real life. I know people like this in real life, and I fucking hate them. <laughs> Well, and I think it's also, like, you bring up a good point. Like, they're entertaining to watch on screen. Uh-huh. Because, like, I think, especially compared to, you know, Thomas or Duchess or, you know, them, they, like, the writers knew who they were. Yeah. And just, like, went with it. Just swung as hard as they could. And that's entertaining. But, like, it's when you really have good. these characters who are just kind of in between and they're like, meh. When, when they're, like, 
the protagonist and have to fill into the fit into the protagonist mold and they don't have any wiggle room to actually do fun things with them mm-hmm. which is also part of why I like which is also part of why I like Lafayette and Napoleon as much as I do because yes they're doing the same thing from <clears throat> yes they're doing the same thing from 101 Dalmatians but the fact that there's only two of them gives them a little bit more to bounce off of and you get like the 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 line that's like uh hang on i'm the leader i say when we go waits two beats now is just something that lived in my house growing up forever like my my sister who is extremely disabled uh will like when she wants something like done at her speed she'll use that bit to basically just be like, no, stop. Give me a second to get ready. And now we're good. Yeah. This, it, it rules. This movie is very quotable. There were so many lines and like beats that just lived in. I Watching it made me realize like live in my head still. So it's yes. like, I'm the leader, that part. Um, uh-huh. When Adelaide goes, Duchess, kittens, come along. Like that whole like. Yeah. Um, a lot of things Marie says too, because while again n- not pitch perfect singer, the inflection on the voice. Funnily enough, Aaron also explicitly mentioned the movie being quotable. There are like a lot of good quotes from the movie, and I remember quoting a lot of scenes and the dogs that uh, they're named after, like the French generals Napoleon and Lafayette, and uh, you know they have like a really good banter and i remember quoting the like i'm the leader i make the decisions line you know like a hundred thousand times when we were little um so i think i don't know it's just something about it is very uh just very charming i guess is maybe the the right word for it and and for whatever reason that that captured my imagination a little bit as a kid um maybe a little bit more than some of those other ones uh, or at least it's it's remained pretty salient. She also says, um, ladies don't start fights, but they can finish them. Which, and I'm just like, yeah, uh, fair enough. Wait, there was another thing that the boys said at the beginning that I was like, okay. Yeah, when they're like, females never fight fair. I was like, oh, females now. Like, that's the... Females. That is the term we are going with. Anytime someone refers to women as females, immediately, immediate red flags. It's, you're just like, oh, again, reasons why I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. they're going to be... Ah, uh, great. Interesting depl- as young men. We're deploying the biological determinism already. Exactly phenomenal amazing i think the only other um character we haven't talked about is roqueford it's sterling holloway mouse <laughs> like i'm sorry automatic win his little hat and coat oh so cute he's <laughs> the best he, he's like can i <laughs> i need to go get another cracker oh love him 10 out of 10 phenomenal great he made me want to eat creme de la creme a la edgar so badly i would like dip club crackers into like milk yeah and try to do it and like snip it like how he kind of goes like and yeah all the time gonna be be honest didn't quite 
as a child, I didn't quite get that Edgar was drugging the cats. So every time I had, like, warm milk, I was mad that it didn't put me to sleep immediately. <laughs> I'm like, I won't go to sleep. Why am I not asleep? Oh, that's right, because there's not an entire bottle of sleeping pills in here. Well, I think that's fair, because, like, it, there's that old, like, you know, like, there's the saying, like, oh, when you can't sleep, you drink a glass of warm milk to help you go to bed. No, warm milk's disgusting. Fuck off. Oh, well, yeah, but, like, that's what people would say. Like, yes, my grandma I, would say it all the time. Yeah, and I would and it's see dumb. it in movies. It's old wives' tale. So, obviously, when you were a kid, like, that's what you would think. Like, you're yeah. like, oh, that, those pills? I thought they were, like, Mentos. I didn't, I didn't even. I was, or something like that. I knew that those were making them sleepy, but I didn't realize that it was, yeah. like, drugs. I was yeah. thinking it was, like, oh, maybe the reaction of the milk with the Mentos creates this, like... Yeah, Mentos Mentos change how liquids work. Yeah. That's all I know as a child. So yeah, who know who knows? Chemistry. Um I had another rather specific memory about this scene from watching the movie as a child. And it came up in our interview with Ray. Well Also, we- are y'all binging with Babish Pants? Yes. The episode he he made an episode for the uh the milk. Oh, what do they call it? Like the, the milk that they the, the, that thing or the yeah 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 i remember seeing oh the creme the creme something creme de la creme, de la creme a la edgar there yeah that go. was it yeah mm-hmm. that uh that that made me so happy because it's one of those things growing up where it, it's similar to like binge binging with babish didn't have on this too but the um the things that brock eats in pokemon that we always thought were powdered donuts because that's what they decided to translate it to in english yeah um i remember that all those, like foods looked so good <laughs> as a child so I watching would, that made me happy i would dip my ritz crackers into water and like eat them like roquefort did you know where he's just like because i like you know it just what what you sound confused what the hell alex what Roquefort looked like he enjoyed it. So why would Alex enjoy it? He said compliments to the chef, and he was so happy to just have a little bit of that creme de la cremella Edgar. Like, (laughs) he brought his own crackers, and they were circular like Ritz crackers. Sometimes I used club crackers instead. It just depended on what we had that day. It's like... It's all about texture. Yeah, okay? exactly. It's okay if and it's a little watered down. And sometimes <laughs> that feels good in your mouth. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, this is profoundly cursed. <laughs> yeah. All right. Also, uh, the alley cats. Oh, I forgot about them. Yeah, I wish I could too. <laughs> That song is really good until it's not. Like this is that was it. The racism in the song is bad. It is. I I think it is some of the most overt since like the 30s and 40s right. that we've seen. Yeah. Like it's like since Peter Pan, I think yeah, actually, which like, is 53. It's, it's like because we talked about the Siamese cats in Lady and the Tramp. This is, like, for it being so brief, is, like, magnitudes worse. Oh, yeah. Like, when 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 he slams the symbol onto his head, and I'm just, like, I, I, I gasped. I was, like, I couldn't, I forgot how bad it is. And he plays the piano with Chop- chopsticks. He, yeah, just... The overbite, the accent. Sh- and in case people don't know what we're talking about, there's a cat who's part of the group, the music group, who is a... Horrible, horrible, atrocious, 
Asian stereotype. Yeah, just absolutely atrocious. And his like his only couple of lines are just I'll pull them up because it's, I it's, it's it's just Chinese buzzwords. Like the what are the it's like Oh. Um his name is Shun Gon, the Chinese cat. And his lyrics are Shanghai Hong Kong Egg Fu Young and then ha 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 but the first ha is ya. And then cookie always wrong. Yeah, ha ha. Now that's a now that's a hot one. I, I, I don't I don't even know where to begin with that. It's bad. So all of our guests in this episode mentioned this scene unprompted and noted it was a moment they did not enjoy in the film because of how racist it is. Ray was telling us about how she liked the music in the film until she had to backtrack because she remembered this scene. It has, so uh, probably like three quarters of the way into it, it has a very racist kind of slur uh, to it. There is a, a cat that they represent as an Asian cat. Um, and he just like, he has this really bad part where it's very like, I, I don't even want to like implement it, but like. He just goes for it, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's very, it's very racist, very slurred. And just, I. I There's it, a bad joke about a fortune cookie in there. It's a whole yeah, thing. I didn't even remember that. Yeah, that's so true. It's, it's awful. <laughs> like, He's- I, I. I know it was a different time, so people, for whatever reason, weren't aware of these things. But like, it boggles my mind that that was okay. Okay, but the cat is also literally playing chopsticks using chopsticks. That's it's true. Too. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I didn't even think about that. We, we talk we talk about the anti racist anti Asian sentiment on the Lady and the Tramp episode. Yeah. Oh, anti Asian stuff is only getting worse. <laughs> yeah. um, no kidding. But like I, I personally think the Aristocat stuff is way worse. Yeah, it's just it, 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 it's so hard to because it's a catchy song. Going back to what we were saying earlier about catchy things, it's a very catchy song, and the whole the rest of the song is really good. And then you hit that, and it just puts such a bad taste in your mouth, and you're just like. Mm-hmm. Why you ruined the entire scene, the entire song because you just had to put that in there? Like it, d- it doesn't make sense. Aaron also brought up the Siamese cats from Lady and the Tramp when talking about the racist cat depiction in the song. Before I go into it, I'd like to note that I conducted this interview before Disney Plus added a content warning on an unskippable screen. Aaron refers to the way the site used to indicate the film had questionable content. One of the things that I remembered from the Aristocats was there's a scene in the Aristocats that's like there are two Siamese cats and they come out and they sing a song and then I realized midway through the movie that's not the Aristocats that's Lady in the Tramp um but the one of the reasons why I got had gone into the movie thinking that was in I was watching these on Disney plus and uh on the description page for the Aristocats there's like a sentence at the end of the description that's like this movie is kept in its original production form it may contain outdated views of like other social cultures and classes and, and whatnot. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting that they put that disclaimer like right on this page and are, I guess, kind of owning that portrayal. Um, and so I was kind of like waiting for that to happen or like kind of expect like what what was the moment that I missed as a kid that like I would be able to see now. Uh, there is one moment where uh, 
funnily enough, uh, again, a portrayal of a Siamese cat that is just so blatantly, like, very culturally um, insensitive that, you know, is like, it only lasts, you know, 20 seconds, maybe, if that. Um, but it just sticks out like an incredibly sore thumb from the rest of the film, uh, which I would say, you know, is definitely by no means perfect in its like portrayal of other cultures, but it's, it's a lot milder, right? Like they make fun of British people. And I think like, you know, there's like maybe some insensitivity there, but it's, you're kind of punching up or at least sideways on that one. Uh, so that I, it feels a little bit different. While talking about Asian representation in other Disney films, Tasman, who is half Chinese, brought up this same scene in The Aristocats. And yeah, they didn't like it either. I love that bit in The Aristocats where that cat goes Ching Chong China, Shanghai Spring Rolls or something and plays the piano with chopsticks. That makes me so happy. I mean, that's what I you want when that. we say media representation, right? Exactly. I mean, I get that they're cats. Um, so, but okay, no, they're cats. Why did they have to make one of the cats Chinese in the first place? What? Um, but also, it's one of my favorite Disney films. And I get with, with obviously the context of it being very old, I'm willing to look past it. But it does still sort of grate my gears. Mm-hmm. What's annoying is that we still see things like that in modern... I mean, not quite as extreme as playing the piano with chopsticks, but we do still see erasure and bad representation in things that are coming out today. Like I know it's not Disney, but it's relevant to this conversation. Mm-hmm. I watched yesterday the trailer for the new Winx adaptation. Mm-hmm. You have a relatively diverse group of characters in the animation. You've got three white girls, a Latinx girl, a Chinese girl... Well, she's based off of Lucy Liu, who is Chinese, but let's just say East Asian to be a bit more general, okay. and a black girl. And then in the live action remake, they have three white girls. The black character is still played by a black person. The Latinx character has been cut entirely. And the East Asian character is now played by someone from another ethnicity. I don't know the actress's ethnicity, so I don't want to say anything inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Could be like Middle Eastern, potentially um brown light brown skin but it's like we're not interchangeable but so to go back to the aristocats like how old is that film do you know when it came out old like 1970 okay not as old as i thought 50 years old um yeah that sort of racism was expected for the time and with it being an american venture then it's probably almost expected for them to have been that racist as terrible as that is to say Ugh. um yeah, it's um, obviously I can only speak in terms of the Asian representation. There is, of course, terrible representation of black people in a lot of old Disney films as well, right. which I think everybody acknowledges now. Everybody's aware of the fact that you have a black crow called Jim Crow, not cool, doing a stereotypically black minstrel voice by a white person. Right. Just ticking all of the boxes of things that you shouldn't do. Right, right. So, but when, when I watch them... It, it, I wouldn't even say that it bothers me so much because it was so, given the context, it was so usual for the time. It's terrible. Yes. Um, but it doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. What does surprise me is when shit like that still happens in things that are coming out today. Mm-hmm. 
and I think what makes it especially worse, this is the last thing I'm going to say, but there's three cats who are coded as being from a country other than America and mm-hmm. French. So there's the Russian cat, and then <clears throat> there's another cat, and I couldn't tell if he was from Spain or Italy or, like, Portugal. Like, one of those places. One of the Iberian Peninsula countries or something. Right. Um, Looking through... Robbie. Yes. And while they, too, speak with accents, they don't have lyrics in the song that are are so... Again, like you said, uh, Asian buzzwords, essentially. Like, the Russian cat, for one, his name's Billy Boss, which... He doesn't He doesn't just run around yelling, St. Petersburg, Moscow, Baklava. Right. You know? His line is, who wants to dig a long-haired gig or stuff like that? Like, you know, like, um, haha, groovy cats. Um, and then he says... Oh, I think the other cat's name is Peppo. Again, it doesn't say anything about anything. But yeah, like, again, and they all have normal lyrics that actually fit into the song instead of just random words. So, anyways. But apart from this cat and how horrible this cat is, you said you enjoyed the song up until that point in the the scene? The song is great until the abort racism mm. and duchess starts singing about how horny she is yeah that was weird that was so weird. that i like with the harp and then the harp hits and then she, her the harp hits and she just goes if you want to turn me on oh i didn't realize that's what she said Wait, and I'm i just started i just started going excuse me movie if you want excuse me i'm sorry movie Play your horn, don't spare the tone, and blow a little soul into that tune. And then O'Malley takes it to another key. Modulate and wait for me. I'll take a few ad-libs pretty soon. The other cats will all commence. Congregate on the fence underneath the alleys. Only light where every note is out of sight. So basically all she's saying... Okay, and if you look at this, it's about playing... It's to Scat Cat. I don't think it's actually to anyone. It's actually. just a general address to the room being like, ah, the power of jazz. And for a minute, like I was sitting there, like an intrusive thought I had was like, if I want to watch people get horny about jazz, I'm just going to watch La La Land again. Like that's the entire point of that movie. Mm-hmm. Why is this here? These are cats. They're These are cats trying to get into a legal dispute over their inheritance. I don't understand why we're <laughs> having the sexy jazz interlude. It was very odd. And then like, you know, the music starts playing again and then they crash down to the floor which rules that's great that was a fun time yeah more property destruction hell yeah uh okay speaking of legal disputes over uh over over inheritance it's time it's time it's time uh it's time to talk about the most important character of this movie edgar the weird lawyer oh Yes, no, of course, Edgar. I just needed to see your reaction when I said the weird lawyer. I fucking hate that lawyer. He stressed me out as a kid. That whole scene where he was, like, trying to go up the stairs. Yeah, no, him getting out of the car, I was having stress palpitations. (laughs) 
<laughs> can't imagine how Edgar was feeling, just trying to be like, sir, please okay. take the elevator. And he's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not. All right. My, okay. My point, my, my notes in order. One, cultural sen- insensitivity warning. Exposure to French people is not okay. Two, lawyer is giving me stress palpitations. Three, Edgar's anger is entirely justified. Oh, I agreed. I agreed. If I found out that my parents were going to like, if they like you know if they in their will yeah. put everything to athena <laughs> i'd be like excuse me <laughs> aaron also sympathized with edgar while watching the film i think edgar the butler in the aristocats gets a bad rap i do not think he's as much of a villain as the movie makes him out to be because he his his life in this is the one place where that sort of class dynamic comes into play right we see him the very opening scene of the film is he is like driving a horse cart and he is getting like climbed on by these kittens and you know like they mean very well but they're kind of like annoying him and like distracting him from the road right and like you know that would be kind of a pain and he's he's sweet about it in that moment and you can tell that like he does seem to genuinely care about the cats in that in that one moment until he finds out that, uh, spoiler alert, the the fortune of Adelaide is going to be left to to these cats instead of him. Um, uh, but you know, it's like we get a very small glimpse at like it appears that his life is as a butler is you know like Adelaide makes no move in that scene to be like, hey, don't. Maybe don't, hey, kitten, don't play on the butler while he's trying to drive this horse cart, right? And then, like, the next scene, the lawyer comes over, and he's, like, this very old, kind of eccentric fellow. He's And he's just a, you know, real fun side character to, to watch. Um, but there's this whole gag where, like, the butler has to get him up the stairs. And there's, like an elevator right in their house that they could use that the lawyer is like, no, I don't need to use the elevator. Uh, I'm, I can walk up the stairs, except he can't. And so the, you know, the poor, poor Edgar has to like get this old man all the way up the stairs. There's so many of them in this huge mansion. And like the poor guy, his like pants fall down a couple of times and he's like all out of breath. He's like carrying this guy up the stairs. And it's like the, the only place in this film where, you can see that class dynamic at all um, are those few moments at the beginning. And I think, you know, after, after the whole plot point about the will and the estate comes into play, that's when we see his character really shift. And, you know, we get a glimpse into like, oh, he's kind of greedy and he really wants the, the money from that estate like as soon as possible. He doesn't want it to go to the cat's wants it to go to him um and that you know that kind of changes things um but at the same time i felt myself like a little like i had a little bit of sympathy for him too like he i would have to imagine that like it you know working as a butler in that situation like your your life was probably somewhat cushy because like you get to work in a a cool place and um you know, it's not like he's doing, like, hard manual labor and, you know, he certainly seems to be earning some kind of wage or whatever. But, like, at the same time, he 
isn't being treated like with the respect that he probably deserves and I don't know I just I felt like if I was in that situation and I found out that this woman who I've worked for for however long is going to leave her estate her entire estate to her cats before any of it gets transferred to me like I think I would be like kind of upset about that too and so I'm not trying to justify his actions like obviously it's you know made out in the film that uh he kidnapped the cats and put them in in kind of peril danger and like that's that's bad you know we don't like mistreating our animals our pets or whatever that's you know kind of a a pretty ground rule of society that like you know you got to take care of your your furry friends um but at the same time i think his his motivations are reasonable and so i I, my argument is that he's not as much of a villain as it might seem. Okay, but here's here's the here's the wrinkle, right? Um, Edgar's not paying attention to that conversation until they mention him. Mm-hmm. So, like. Mal, um, Mal pointed this out. My, uh, my my partner pointed this out to me while we were watching. One, he is not. I don't. He should not feel entitled to this inheritance off the bat. Yes, and I don't think he does because she is his employer. He does not start paying attention to this until she says, "The per- I only want my cats to be taken care of. The person who is most able to take care of my cats is Edgar." At which point he turns and starts paying attention and getting a little like. Like, there is disbelief on his face more than, like, expectation, Mm. right? Like, he's like, okay, this is cool. I'm about to come into a whole lot of money. Because, like, he is... He is shown up until that point to be an extremely good butler. Yes. And and server. Like, he lets those cats climb all over him. He doesn't... if, If a weird creepy old man who's just losing his mind started climbing on me on the stairs that man would be going over the banister immediately and i would go find myself a new job and not worth it he puts up with so so much to and like yes he's living in this really nice house but his room is like very clearly not upkept very well mm-hmm. um so he's entirely within his right to be excited at the potential of inheriting all of this money and then for her to be like no the cats are gonna get it first and then when they die he's gonna get them get the money like i don't blame him for wanting to like make the cats go away uh and like he doesn't set out to kill them he just wants to take them out into the country and be like go be barn cats now mm-hmm. um which like they're not built for obviously but they could adapt to that being a barn cat's not so bad uh the issue comes where he's like actively starting to like murder them and then gaslight madam about like oh no the cats aren't here what are you talking about i didn't hear anything well it was so odd because like again it's from the beginning you're like he's excellent at his job yeah but it's this what it's like any typical disney film it's like you become the villain when you let your vices take over Right. So because he allows himself to be greedy and feel entitled to this woman's inheritance. Right. Like, that's why one that drives him to act in a way that would make him the villain. Um, and it drives him to, like, almost insanity, I'd say. Like, he was like, yeah. 
like the cats were back and he was fighting off like six cats to send them to Timbuktu. Yes. Which also, mm. yeah. Mm. Uh, but it's still, I don't know. It's like, I, I have a hard time defaulting him for a ton of stuff because like for the majority of it, it is just, she is leaving everything to her cats first mm-hmm. and then Edgar's going to get it. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't really fault him for wanting to speed the process up. Right. Um, I, but, the, but like if, if she had been a little bit like just, why is it so hard to just sit down and talk to people? <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a single conversation would have fixed all of this. Yeah. But also, like, this is this is the problem with this movie. Ultimately, there's no stakes, right? Mm-hmm. Because, like, it's all over... This movie is... Un- much, like, much like The Phantom Menace is about nebulous legal disputes. <laughs> which could all be solved with, like, a good conversation. Right. Like, not, not The Phantom Menace, but this could be solved with, like, a single good sit-down conversation. Yeah. And let me tell you, I'm not too particularly crazy about uh, wealthy, uh, wealthy like the the super wealthy people, uh, just being like, nah, fuck my money, just give it to the cats, right? <laughs> fuck that. Why, why even bother? If you want Edgar to take care of the cats, make him the beneficiary with the stipulation that he take care of your cats after you're gone. Like, that's a much more efficient way to do this. This just feels like a way to fuck with the lower class. And it's frustrating. Because that, like, it, it really feels like she kind of, not like expected this, but did this specifically to fuck with him. Because this really does feel cruel. Like, you'll get the money after the cats die. Until then, it's not yours. And you have to keep living in this shitty little bedroom. For a movie with the title that is a play on the word aristocrat, it really doesn't do a lot to differentiate class. This is something Aaron was shocked to find out. The other big thing that I noticed about this movie is there is like no class tension for a movie that's called The Aristocats. There's like very little um, like highlight shown of the, the differences or the clashes between like what is clearly the wealthy upper crust, uh, highfalutin establishment of Paris, and uh, you know, like Thomas O'Malley's alley cat, you know, low class life, and uh, you know, they like they visit his house or his pad or whatever they call it, and it's like kind of a dumpy place, but um, you know, weirdly, like Duchess is like very cool with it, and she's just like always kind of impressed and charmed by. Thomas, which seems like the opposite reaction of what we would think she she would have as a as a high class cat, you'd think she'd be turned off to it a little bit, um, which is nice to see. Like it's nice to see these characters interacting with each other in such a like sweet and wholesome and endearing way. But for a movie that sets itself up to be about these high high establishment felines, it really does not like say anything about like class differences class warfare uh or like like any of that which you know what are you expecting from a disney movie that was made in i don't know 1970 or something but like uh it was just surprising to me i 
when I went into the movie, I was like, oh, this is something I'm going to pick on, w- pick up on way more as an adult. And then I just didn't see it at all. So that was weird. Aaron is not wrong. The film avoids addressing the reality of class differentiation and tension, and that means something. Tara and I go into it more in our discussion. So I think, like Adelaide, the audience is kept in the dark with a lot of the realities of the lower and working class. Yeah. Because I think, especially like, Because, like, the two insights we really get of it are Edgar's bedroom, for one, Uh and then the low-rent district, specifically, with, like, the houses, and they're all kind of... Which is, like, the first time where we see, like, a decrepit house, but, like, the people in... Like, the cats inside are actually, like, considered the good guys, you know? Like, it completely is destroyed, but it's not because they're bad or anything. But... what What got me was how, like the movie positions the low rent district specifically in a more glamorous way than I think the Uh realities of it. And so because of that, I think when you completely negate just the realities of being working class and the realities of that, that sort of existence, it's a lot easier for you to just in the movie specifically see Edgar's actions as being motivated by pure greed. Now, if I think we saw the realities of that, you know, like Mm -hmm. what is Edgar's life actually like, you know, I mean, like he lives in the house, but what is like, if he doesn't get that money, what is the consequence of that? Again, like there's no stakes in this movie. We don't see that. And again, like kind of like how I was mentioning before about like oversimplification, they really oversimplify class structure and class status in this movie no kidding and again like disney often does positions your success and your failings in life based on who you are as a person and the individual not necessarily the collective or right and i i think it's important to note that now that walt's gone this is like by by continuing to do this this is the company itself taking a stand Mm mm-hmm on its own position in terms of like societal economics um like obviously the giant media corporation we know today has these opinions on on stuff but like this is in my mind this is the first to like because previously i've uh, you i've kind of hand waved a lot of this away by saying like quote unquote hand waved a lot of it away i've not hand waved any of this away (laughs) i focus on it quite a lot but you can always point back and be like, these are Walt's opinions. You know these are Walt's opinions. A lot of this can be traced back to Walt specifically because he had a lot of say in what went into his movies. Walt's gone now. This is what the writer's room and the the people running Disney want to put out into the world. So now like we're beginning to see like the more the quote unquote morals of the company take shape. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're continuing to plant their flag here is telling. where uh for where we will end up and i think it is all it's all like connected too though like you also have to keep in mind that ken anderson and wolfgang reitherman have basically been spearheading every project since the mid 50s you know ever since the the directorial trio left right so and but then again you have to think who elevated to them to those positions walt did right right like walt is the one who is picking so you can tie it to walt and mm-hmm. like the 
I think him specifically as a person, but then also like the right. company culture that he has created as such. Right. Like we've talked yes. about this a lot, but like there really were no fe- like women animators. Right. In the company, like we've like in the history sections, I've mentioned um, Heidi and like how she was trying throughout yeah. this time to make it in the animators room and just constantly was like they were like no. Uh-huh. And and the way they handled the way they treated Mary Blair as well. Oh, exactly. Just like completely, completely, just giving the runaround. Yes, constantly. Um, yeah, no, I guess that's fair because like they're like, and the company is still at the at this point only acting in how they thought Walt would act. Yeah. So like his specter is still looming large. I but like the fact that like they are, they are still they are still staking their claim to this type of. Uh, economic morality in in a sense um like the 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 notion that like even when walt's gone we're going to continue to perpetuate this stuff um which as we'll talk about as i will talk about in a couple of weeks opens the door for some particularly nasty characters to come in behind the scenes and uh run rampant (laughs) over over the company so fun so fun we love it we Um, love to see it um but going going back to to adelaide and the legal shit um i feel like the movie understands that what she's doing to edgar is kind of shitty mm -hmm. um even if even if she doesn't necessarily understand that it's shitty because she does amend her will again when the cats come back and Edgar leaves because she has to redo it now that Edgar's out of the picture. Mm-hmm. And she opts to start a foundation for the alley cat for all the homeless alley cats of Paris. Why didn't you fucking do that the first time, huh? Because like, she didn't meet Thomas. That's fair. That's yes, you're right. Yes. <laughs> you are correct. But my point is right. but also it's still not great because like what are what are the only ways the wealthy know how to pass down their money it's give it to like people directly like in their immediate vicinity or start a nonprofit. Mm. <laughs> so she's still like that money could be used for many different re- many different things and yes it's good to start foundations to take care of like homeless animals and like stray cats and stuff but hey you want to know what else that money would be great for uh fixing the fucking uh really dilapidated houses that are just all over paris but no cats i truly don't think her character is aware of any of it though i know and that's part of the problem yeah that is ultimately part of the problem because like when you are that wealthy you become insulated from the world around you so like yes these are all the things your money could be used for, but she has no fucking clue that that's a problem. Right. And that in itself is the problem. Yeah. Because that's kind of ultimately what caused the, we the assume, begin with. reading yeah. into the subtext, the inner con- the main conflict of the movie. Right. With Edgar. Yeah. <sighs> Dang. Well, I don't really have anything else other than like i was kind of like i don't know i guess they're just rich old folks which is why adelaide and george's relationship i thought was interesting they told they they were they were 
they've been like an on again off again thing for like their entire lives i was thinking like my thought was like okay so they met when she was like just starting like just got her first big opera job right and i was like she totally like just was like got with him and he paid for all her stuff and that's Uh honestly probably why she's able to afford like this beautiful house and everything that's the vibe i got from her because she was like duchess you know he's our oldest and dearest friend and i was Mm -hmm. like Uh, oldest and dearest all right (laughs) got it that man paid you for stuff that's what i was thinking well because then like you think about and then again this movie is so out of context of like yeah paris and france yeah Yeah. but like you just think about the paris arts culture of the time right and just kind of like, you know, rich people would date the leads all the time or like, oh, yes, absolutely. And pay for their stuff and pay for nice dresses and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Like they're beneficiaries, basically. Yes. yes, absolutely. And to be clear, I'm not shaming her for. Any oh, of, of course this. not. Fucking, no, I, I, real, I realize my tone is hard to decipher sometimes. and I just want to be abundantly clear. No, fucking go for it, girl. Absolutely. More she, power to you. Right. Like a beautiful home with her cats. Like. Ah, uh, mood. Right. Like there's like that um that still that co- goes around a lot of her and she's like in her feather boa and she's doing a pose with her cats and like there's so many like uh-huh dub- like you know people who are like she is the moment like this is all I want I just want to live my single life with my cats and that's everything <laughs> uh-huh it rules Ah, oh, what a queen but yeah other than that and then just like moments that uh, I think there's like so many really sharp and dramatic and pow moments like when Adelaide realizes the cats are gone and she like bursts through doors as soon as the thunder and lightning go and she just looks like this woman in distress and you're like oh the drama I love it yeah but also like they feel like those moments feel like they're from a different movie yeah, they do carry, so, I guess, this so much. Yeah, so much of this movie is just the lightest, like, not necessarily fluffy, but, like, low stakes, just vignettes of, like, these cats, tr- like, adventures out in the w- outside for a day. Yeah. Like, the, like the time, time scale is also weird. This takes place over, like, three days. Mm-hmm. How far out did Edgar take them that they could just walk back? For th- over three days. Like, it's... Uh, also, it like, they're in, a, like, a place where there's, like... It looks like there's no civilization apart from those two dogs. Yeah, but also you say that. Fuck, uh, drive ten minutes outside of town and tell me what yeah, you see. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Um, but with that being said, though, I think it does work to make the audience sympathize with her and also root for the cats to actually go home because i feel like the emotional bond between duchess and adelaide is stronger than the emotional bond between duchess and thomas yeah personally um so i liked it personally um i love like how napoleon pauses right before he says like when he does the whole i'm the leader we've talked about that um yeah, I don't know. I just think there's some... I like there are quotes in this movie that work really well. Um, and that, like, stick with me. There's also just, like, little stills, too, that I enjoy. Other than the, fu- other than the fact that, like, the background art is gorgeous, like, I've got nothing else to say. Like, we're, I, think we've, I think we've tapped it yeah, on this. Yeah, I think we're good. 
Look at us hitting an hour on this movie. Well, that's all from us this week. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And hey, if you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a review. Uh, five stars only, of course. You can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Isaac. And you can find me at play underscore champion. You can also follow the show at Dream Deeper Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can write to us at dreamalittledeeperpod at gmail.com. Special thanks to all of our guests for taking the time to talk to us this week. You can find Ray on Twitter at Ray Summy. You can find her design work on FilmCred and on her Instagram page, The Design Demon. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron Kruzniak. And you can follow Tasman's book blog at T Books and Tasman on YouTube and Instagram. And you can find their poetry page at Tasman May Poetry. And finally, thanks to my dad for always being there whenever I have any sort of question regarding money or finances, and for just being a good dad. Thank you for listening. Join us next time as we discuss Robin Hood. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers.